You'll notice uh, there was no music during the offering. That's because we're saving it for the end of the service. Yesterday, sitting in the hospital with Warren Norcom, he was telling me that uh, throughout his life he's been a trumpet player, and uh, he's been struggling lately, and so we decided this morning that we're going to have an invitation at the end of the sermon, and uh, the way he plays the trumpet, well, either you're going to come forward or you're going to have to listen to him play. <laughs> Is that still on, brother? <laughs> if you owe me one. <laughs> my, my, what a blessing to be here. Aren't we just overwhelmed with gratitude for the progress made with Jared? Yesterday morning, things looked so dark. Today, the darkness isn't gone, but it's receding. Praise be his name. Any child that's ever attended Sunday school or children's church or vacation Bible school can tell you the story of Jonah and the whale. Sort of see it as a kid's story, but it's much more than that. Last couple of days, the Lord has had me just think about that account and that event. And you know, as I thought about it, the theme that continually came to me as I thought about Jonah was this. Our God is a God of compassion. This morning, I'd like for us just to spend a little bit of time thinking about the story of Jonah through that lens of the God of compassion. The story actually begins about 150 years before Jonah was born, if we're really going to understand the story, begins during the final years of Solomon's time as king of Israel. The saying often is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we can say that about Solomon. He finally became so full of the sense of who he was as king that he felt he could do anything he wanted. And here was a man who was obsessed with building. You know, sometimes we've met people like that. My family knows of a man who built more than one church building. He built two houses. Anytime there was any kind of construction, he had to be in on it. He was just an obsessive builder. And some people are obsessed with constantly remodeling their houses. And it's just something there. And that was there with Solomon. He built his own house. He built at the instruction of God the beautiful temple which was the home of the Holy of Holies. But then this man who had married many wives from, who worshipped false gods began to build shrines to each of these gods. He began to build walls around the city and at various places to build special fortresses. There was something in him that drove to build. But in order to do this, he required every citizen of the nation to register as today if a young man over 18, I guess it's still true, was, has to register for the draft. And the government, once you registered for the draft, can call you up. And that's what he did with the people of Israel. Everyone had to register. And so he began to call up citizens, some sending them to Lebanon where they cut down the cedar trees and some to 
float the rafts down the coastline to Joppa, and then another group to carry them from Joppa to Jerusalem. Some he compelled to work in the rock quarries, that back-breaking work. Some he had building the walls. And Scripture says this was forced labor in order to pay for it. He greatly increased the taxes upon the people, and they felt the heavy burden of this man who was obsessed with building things that would in time enhance his own name. Now there was a man who was a fine soldier. He was known as a great warrior. His name was Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was a natural leader of men, young but a natural leader. And Solomon appointed him to oversee the building of a fortress on a portion of the wall called Milo. And as Jeroboam worked, he did his best. He oversaw the forced labor. But one day as he was walking down a path, the prophet Abijah met him. And the prophet Abijah had just put on a brand new cloak. And he took it off in front of Jeroboam and told it into 12, tore it into 12 pieces. Jeroboam, pick up 10 pieces of this robe, this cloak. God is going to tear away the nation of Israel from the descendants of David. At least 10 tribes will leave and you will become the king of those 10. Pick up 10 pieces as a symbol of this. Now some way, Solomon heard about this prophecy. And so he sought to kill Jeroboam, and Jeroboam fled to Egypt and stayed there until Solomon had died. He came back at that time. The people of Israel invited him to come back. He came back and they met with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who was to be the new king. And they said, you know, please lift the yoke that your father put upon the people Reduce the taxation. Stop this forced labor that he has imposed upon us. Give me three days to think about it, Rehoboam said. The elders met with him and said, hear what the people are asking. If you do this, they'll be loyal to you your whole life. But instead of heeding their counsel, he met with young men as friends. And they said, we're in charge now. We're going to increase the load. And so Jeroboam met with the leaders and said, my little finger is going to be thicker than my father's thigh. And he began to impose heavier things upon the people. And so the delegates from the ten northern tribes said, we leave the Israeli confederation. We break away. We secede. And so the ten northern tribes pulled away, leaving only Judah and Benjamin for Rehoboam. The leaders of the northern tribes said, Jeroboam is a natural leader. He will be our king. And they made him king. And the northern tribes kept the name of Israel. The southern tribes came to be known as Judah. 931 B.C., the nation was divided. Jeroboam began to be concerned about his nation because the law of God said that every Jew at certain times of the year should go to Jerusalem and there before the temple to offer sacrifices. The high priest on the day of atonement would make atonement for the people uh, upon the Ark of the Covenant. 
And he thought if my people go back to Jerusalem, then somehow our secession will fail and the nation will become one again. What can I do? He committed the sin of thinking about building the establishment more than being obedient to God. And so he established two shrines, one at Bethel, 12 miles north of Jerusalem, and the other Dan in the far north. And in each of these shrines, he had built two golden statues of bulls. And he said to his people, these are your gods, the one that led you out of Egypt. And we remember when Aaron built the golden calf, he was doing the same thing. Now, in a way, this is geovistic worship because a bull in that part of the country represented power. And so this represents the power of Jehovah. But as is often true, even though you have a physical symbol to represent a spiritual truth, people in time make an idol of that and begin to worship it. And that happened. The kings upon the throne of Israel really constitute a very sad story. One after another, after Jeroboam died, there would be a king. Some rule only two or three days. Someone would assassinate them. There were tribal wars, each one trying to get the top. Time after time after time, a king was killed or deposed or some way ruined. And then in 788 B.C., a king came to the throne who took the name of the founder, Jeroboam II. He reigned for 41 years. And during his reign, the borders of the kingdom extended greater than they ever had been or ever would be again. The nation became very prosperous. It was a time of tremendous peace. That was because, according to 1 Kings 14, 26, and 27, God heard the cries of his people. They were beset on every side. There was no one to help them. And so the compassionate God sent a prophet named Jonah. And the Lord spoke to Jonah words of wisdom and guidance. And Jonah then told Jeroboam what to do, and Jeroboam did it. And the nation prospered. Jeroboam, it said, however, continued in the sins of Jeroboam the first. Isn't that something to think about? Twice Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 40, and he quotes the Septuagint, not the Hebrew version. He says, who can know the mind of God or who has been his counselor? And sometimes as we read the story of Jonah, you can say that. Paul quoted that. Romans 11, 34, 1 Corinthians 2, 16. But who can know the mind of God? Who has been, Lord, why are you blessing the nation led by this wicked man? It's because our God has a heart of compassion and he had a heart of compassion for his people and sent a prophet to guide this king who was not holy because God cared about his people. At the same time that Jonah was counseling the king, God sent another prophet. In Judah, in the village of Tekoa, there was a shepherd who was named Amos. 
He had never been a prophet. He said, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But one day while he was taking care of his sheep, the word of God came to him. Go to Bethel and proclaim my word. And Amos went to Bethel. And what an interesting sermon he preached. First he brought judgment on this nation and that nation and that nation. You hear everybody saying, amen, amen, amen. And then he said, Judah, wait a minute. That's getting kind of close. And then for the sins of Israel, yea, seven and not but one. And the priest, how dare you come here to the king's shrine and speak of his sins? But Amos said, all I can do is speak the word of God. Notice again the compassion of God. He was sending one prophet to guide the king so the nation could become prosperous, but he was sending another prophet to call them to repentance so they could become holy. Who can understand the mind of God and who has been his counselor? But we see the compassion of God for his people. One day the word of God came to Jonah in a new way. This was not words that he would give to the king as counsel. But he said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city. And cry out against it, because its sins are great. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria had dominated all of these surrounding nations except Israel, and Israel was even having to pay tribute to Assyria, Assyria, not Syria. That was like saying to a Jew in Poland, in 1938, Hitler invaded Poland in 1939 and carried away the Jews to the death camps. But if in 1938, a year before Hitler had done that, God had said to a Jew, go to Berlin and start crying out against their sins, it would have been the very same thing as what God was saying to Jonah. Go to Nineveh, the capital of those ones who hate your people, and Looking to the future, someday we'll destroy it, but go cry out against them because their sin has come up before me. Nineveh was 590 miles northeast of Samaria, the city in which Jonah lived. Instead of going 590 miles <laughs> northeast, he turned and went straight west. God said, go east, young man. Jonah went west. He went down to Joppa, and according to Jewish tradition, we don't know exactly, but Jewish tradition says he paid 4,000 gold denarii to buy a ticket to Tarshish. He found a ship sailing to Tarshish, bought a ticket, got on board. Now Tarsus, we're not sure exactly where that was. Many think probably Spain. There also was an island uh, west of Italy that sometimes was called that. If it had been the island, he was going to travel 1,500 miles. If it were Spain, it would be 2,000 miles. But what he was doing, he was trying to resign from the ministry. 
I don't want to be God's spokesman anymore. I'm getting out of here. Far different from Elijah that when he came before the king, he said, I am Elijah who stands before Jehovah. <laughs> Jonah was running away. And you know the story. The journey had just begun when God raised up a great storm on the sea. The waves began to toss. It became so severe the sailors were afraid it was going to, the boat was going to break up. They recognized this was not some natural phenomenon. The gods are doing this. And so every one of those sailors began to sacrifice and cry out to their particular gods and nothing happened. Now Jonah was worn out. He had walked 40 miles from Samaria to Joppa, done the deal, got on board. He went down below and was sound asleep. The sailors were throwing overboard everything to try to lighten the load. The captain went down and found Jonah asleep and said, How can you be asleep with all that's going on? And they brought him up and they said, We've got to figure out if any one of us is guilty of something the gods are angry at. So they cast lots and the lots came to Jonah. What have you done? And then he told them the story of why he had boarded the ship. I can't avoid stopping here and saying any time you disobey God, any time you enter into a life of sin, any time you give yourself even to certain obsessive sins, you're not the only one it affects. It affects all of those about you. How many parents have wept for hours over a child that has turned away from God? How many children have wept over parents that are living ungodly lives? Hemingway, writing the book For Whom the Bell Tolls, quotes the poet John Donne. And in that poem, there is the line, no man is an island. And that's true. None of us is an island. Anything you do, good or bad, has an impact on those about you. You say, oh, well, I, I do pornography in secret. Nobody sees it. What about those who are victims of whom the pictures are taken? Not only that, you know there are certain sins that when you commit them, there's just some kind of an uncleanness that comes under your spirit. And every place you go, you take that uncleanness. And I'll have to say this, not that I'm super spiritually sensitive, but there are times when I'm around someone and I sense there's just something unclean. Do you sense that around certain people? There's just something unclean. You cannot enter into sin and you be the only one that it affects. And these poor mariners, these poor sailors were having to endure life-threatening, fearsome situations because Jonah had sinned against God. And so they cast the lots. And it was Jonah. And he told them what they'd done. And he said, if you'll just throw me overboard, all the trouble will go away. 
You see the nobility of these men. They didn't do it. They started rowing, trying to get back to shore, but the storm was so great they could make no progress. They cried out to Jonah's God and threw Jonah overboard. Immediately the sea was calm, and they worshiped Jehovah. Don't you know for the rest of their lives... Those sailors, everywhere they went, every port they went into, they said, let me tell you about the true God. We met him. God's compassion on those men is beautiful to think about. Chapter 2 of Jonah, he describes what happens to him. He says he went into the sea, went all the way down, got entangled in seaweeds and and then some kind of a sea creature came along and swallowed him. Now, you know, we say to the kids, it's Jonah and the whale. We really don't know. The word, both in Hebrew and Greek here, does not mean fish. Fish are cold-blooded animals. Whales are warm-blooded. The word really carries the idea of a sea monster, which maybe is a whale. Who knows? We can't say. But in the belly of whatever that was, and we'll call it a whale, Jonah had a tremendous three-day prayer meeting, <laughs> crying out to God. He records in Jonah chapter 2 his prayer. And then, after three days, the creature belched him out upon the shore, no doubt near Joppa, and he had to walk the 40 miles back to his home in Samaria. Let me give you an interesting aside. The Mediterranean Sea, various sea creatures have been caught in which they have found in their bellies a reindeer. Who knows where they came from to get to the Mediterranean with a reindeer? Cow, fully clothed man. And I'm trying to remember the year. It was late 1800s. I think it was around 1880. There was a whaling vessel called the White Star. And they came into a herd of sperm whales, and they put two uh, boats into the water with harpooners on the bow. The first harpooner got his kill. The second boat turned over. I don't remember if a whale bumped it or what, but it turned over, and all the... Sailors fell overboard, and one man was lost. His last name was Bartlett. I can't remember his first name. It's been a long time since I read about this. But um, they went on with their killing of whales. The next day, they had all these whales on board, and they were butchering them, and they opened the belly of one whale and found their lost sailor <laughs> alive, skin bleached from the gastric juices. He was a lunatic for two weeks, but he survived and continued to tell the story throughout his life. Now, just because, you see, this sort of thing may happen in the natural, in no way should affect our belief fully in the story of Jonah and the sea monster. But it's interesting that in the natural, this has actually happened. passion of God. 
he gave Jonah a second chance. Think about this. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, God did not destroy the human race, but in his compassion, he gave us a second chance. When it came to the point that every, every thought and intent of man's heart in Genesis chapter 6 was unto evil, God did not destroy the human race. He sought out and found one righteous man, Noah. You see, our God is a compassionate God. And as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. He keeps giving us chance after chance after chance. There does come a time, however, in which you can cross the line and there are no more chances. 1 John, the closing chapter, says if you find a brother in sin, pray for him. He'll be restored. But he said there is a sin unto death. I don't say you should pray for one that has committed that. Now, I have no idea when someone has gone that far, so I'm going to assume they never have, and I'm always going to be praying for them. But the point is, there is a time in the life of a nation and there's a time in the life of a family, and there's a time in the life of a people in which you can cross the line, and God says, you've had enough chances. That happened, you remember, when Abraham was leaving Ur of Chaldees and passing through the land, the Amorites were there, and God said, they're sinning, but I'm not going to do anything. And here's interesting language he used. He said, because their cup of iniquity is not yet full. <laughs> he gave them more time. But in time, the cup of iniquity was full. And when the Israelites came into the land, God said, go into their villages, kill every man, woman, and child and animals. If they continue in the world, they will so contaminate my people. They had crossed the line. Serious thing to think about, isn't it? The line can actually be crossed. And so the word of God came to Jonah the second time. <laughs> Go to Nineveh and crowd against that great city because of its wickedness. And interesting, in chapter 4, we find that Jonah was not afraid of the Ninevites. Think about that Jew going to Berlin to preach in 1938. Man, wouldn't that have been scary? He wasn't afraid of the Mennonites. He was of Ninevites. He was afraid of this. He was afraid that God would be compassionate. That's what it says in chapter 4. I didn't want to go, I ran away because I knew you were a compassionate God. He was afraid he would be successful as a preacher. Isn't that something? <laughs> and so he went to Nineveh. We're told the city is uh, three and a half days journey, probably circumference, speaking of greater Nineveh, not like we'd say greater Tulsa. So he went to the streets and began to proclaim and cry their sins. Evidently, he sort of stopped in the middle and went over and kind of sat down on a hill. Let's see what they do. The king 
of all things, is convicted. You know, not probably that Jonah was such a great preacher, but God was busy. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, when I came, I didn't come with excellency of speech and, you know, the, the, the Greek seek wisdom, Jews signs, so on. None of that. But many of you came to Christ, and why did you do it? You did it because of the power of the Holy Spirit, anointing the sermon and working in your hearts while I preached. Something like that must have happened in Nineveh. Not only did the king said we repent, but he declared a fast, and even the animals had to fast. Think about that, fasting animals. And Jonah, sitting on the hill, started to mope. I knew that's what was going to happen. God caused miraculously really a castor plant to quickly grow up overnight. That doesn't happen in the natural. A lot of leaves made shade for Jonah. Well, I'm sure glad I have this. And then God quickly withered the plant and Jonah started griping. And God said, what right do you have to complain about this castor plant that you didn't have anything to do with growing? Remember, Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But he said, in that city of Nineveh, there are 120,000 children not old enough to know their right hand from their left. And he said, and this is interesting, besides that, there are many animals. God cares for the animals. Isn't that something? God cares for the animals. Estimates of nations of that day are that the average population of children in a general population is one-fifth. If that is true, that would mean there were 600,000 people in Nineveh that God spared because they repented, because of God's Aren't you thankful we have a compassionate God? And of course, for you and me today, what we did at that Lord's table, oh, how that impresses on us the compassion of God. Every person in this room would be damned to hell were it not for the cross of Jesus. God's greatest act. So when we take the Lord's Supper, dear God, and this is what my family often prays, thank you that we're going to heaven. Thank you that our circle will be unbroken. Thank you that we'll be together because we trust your cross. God's greatest act of compassion. Lord, we thank you that you are who you are. We acknowledge that we are so unworthy. Thank you for your patience, your compassion, and your love. Through Jesus, amen.